welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. So it's great to have you here for part two of my discussion with Dr. Dara McCashin. In part one, Dara discussed his PhD in digital mental health and his path to being an assistant professor in the School of Psychology at Dublin City University in Ireland and starting there during COVID. In part two here, we start off replaying what he was saying about the mental health challenges faced by PhD students and early career researchers in particular, and then we get into a focus on the imposter, something that I think we can all probably relate to. Based on his work and and that of his colleagues in the EU REMO cost action, REMO standing for Research Mental Health Observatory, Dara talks about what is imposterism, how it's experienced, the importance of raising awareness and the power of sharing our imposter experiences. He also talks about the importance of taking both top-down and bottom-up approaches for dealing with imposterism and shares some very practical strategies for doing this. So enjoy this episode. What would you like to talk about when you when you see studies that say potentially one in three PhD candidates are at risk of a clinically significant mental health issue? Um, mm, that's significant. That... That's a significant figure as well. If yeah. it's a significant mental health, absolutely, absolutely, and kind of, I suppose the the, the reassurance that people get when when hearing, um, uh. And particularly with imposter feelings, it's incredibly powerful when somebody beside you at a different career stage or, a di- or in a different discipline spews the same type of imposter stuff that almost mm-hmm. your gut reaction is to laugh at, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it it's it's like, oh my God, I can't believe that you're almost annoyed. You're like, okay, so it's not, it's not just me. So you can t- tell someone that, but facilitating a space where that organically happens mm-hmm. uh, is the thing yeah. we really need to harness Harness that. I've largely kind of fallen into that area of, of um, I suppose it's advocacy in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's, it's just kind of, as I said, taking the energy of, 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 um, of, of, of the various fields that, you know, Researcher mental health and, and academic me- ac- academic me- mental health is touching a nerve with a lot of people. Mm. Um, so going with that is has been a really fascinating journey. Mm. How do you mean you fell into it? What what is, is there a story there about how that? <laughs> well, it's a very simple, quick story. Yeah, I, I think I think I put my hand up at a meeting, <laughs> and someone said, "Oh, well, you should." Uh, do something about that, and then here I am. But it was at, um, I think it was the Marie Curie Alumni Association. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to these Marie Curie um, programs, a lot of people, they just stick with the institution or the PI, or and, that, and that's all fine, but there's such a wider network that one can leverage if they so wish. And, of course, it's actively encouraged because mm-hmm. we are – 
uh, a lot of the funding is predicated on you, you know, going and, mm-hmm. and, and networking with other disciplines and so on. So I did that. So be, for people who aren't from Europe, can you just explain very briefly sure. what Marie Curie is? So it's, it's a, it's a European Commission funded program, um, that kind of emphasizes, uh, interdisciplinarity, but also, uh, I'm, with that uh, kind of hypermobility. So you are encouraged to, so our program was of course like eight or 10 partners, I can't even remember, mm. uh, scattered across Europe. So we, we have the, the, the privilege of being able to, to network with that. So at my first event, um, so the overall kind of association hosting something, I think there was a session on our breakout session on mental health and how there was nothing really happening in that area. And I think I just said something. I can't, I can't even remember, can't even remember what I said. Um, and I was mingling afterwards and someone said, well, I'll, I'll send an email here and you could join the policy working group and you could set up a mental health task force or you could, you could raise it there. And it was literally from there that it just mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. turned into mm-hmm. uh, a team and a, and a really big team. And this is another example of what you're doing in the in the department as well of putting yourself out there and just going and joining things that are available to join like yeah yeah and look it's not everyone's cup of tea of course mm. it, it's a it's an introvert's worst nightmare of course mm. um but that's still not to undersell what the sociologists would call kind of the strength of weak ties mm. uh, there are different ways of doing it um particularly in a, in an online capacity i found twitter and, and linkedin excellent for that you know being able to follow conferences and and um and certain researchers and getting their stream of consciousness consciousness as they think about mm. certain issues all of that I, I found really useful but yeah and in, in in doing that for a certain period of time and then seeing how that all accumulates over time particularly with this cost action we 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 just had our our first conference in Budapest in our last month and kind of seeing finally particularly everything that was on Zoom kind of come to life literally um you see the value in 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 putting oneself out there and and, yeah. and giving you know broad parameters for something to organically develop like networking is hard particularly across cultures with the amount of meetings we had where we're just simply trying to find a broad definition of mental health and well-being from which we would then go on and and i recall so many meetings in this very room feeling frustrated Mm. because it was like going back to square one Mm. if somebody new joins or if there's a different um um cultural interpretation of there's nothing right or wrong Uh, it's just simply a case of okay you know, it's hard getting yeah. a bunch of people together to to yeah. to do the same. A bunch thing. of academics, in particular, oh, that too, absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> with their definitions. So, in the in the facilitating that you're doing and the breakouts and people just, you know, you talked about creating the space for them to just talk about this. What are the sorts of themes, issues, experiences that people are bringing up again and again? Yeah, so I think particularly with. Um, there's a sense of uh, this connection between, let's say, the hyper competitiveness 
the kind of uh, sink or swim uh, survival of the fittest uh, issue within academia mm-hmm. um, and the imposterism that comes from that um, funding challenges precarity these are the big ones and, and either perhaps as a direct consequence or an indirect consequence of that um mental health suffers mm. um and the different communication styles around that is 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 a real issue how does mental health suffering practically play out well i mean a lot of the research um i'm just trying to think of the, the latest meta analysis is uh, it's kind of shown i think with 25000 pooled sample one in four will have clinical levels of of depression so low mood um you'll see a lot of isolation as well so you you may even have big labs but like individually feeling isolated because of these factors there so it's not in one's competitive interest uh to be discussing mental health struggles Mm. For fear of it being interpreted as uh, as a as a as an unwelcome um, mm. challenge, so, so so there's a lot of that as well, um, and, and then there's more kind of um, population specific challenges as well. So uh, sexual harassment, uh, bullying, and um, kind of gender based issues there, um, hypermobility, particularly as we think about. Uh, funding resources where they say no as part of this funding you must go to xyz mm. when you think of career stages where there's uh, young families involved or there's significant distances yeah. that's a big issue too of course so those are the kind of the the, the, the macro issues um, and they continually arise regardless of country, institution, discipline, or do you see patterns across any any of those sorts of dimensions? So there are some patterns. I mean, obviously it's been EU-centric for mm. what we've been doing. And even, even, even within that kind of framing, there's ample differences. UK and Ireland are relatively progressive in terms of mental health policy from a top-down perspective. And from a bottom-up perspective, like advocacy and awareness campaigns are are plentiful. Um, however, like there's other areas of of Europe where even the term mental health is itself still felt or seen as stigmatizing. Mm. The word mental, you know, and I remember once being told it would be better to use performance or or you know a different word to get it get the conversation started. But you know, don't. Um, unknowingly emboldened the stigma. Um, Germany has had some very interesting reports from the Max Planck uh, and some high-profile bullying cases from from the Max Planck um, with ongoing cases there. Um, and likewise, the States have had some, some huge kind of high-profile cases of systematic bullying. Mm. Um, and Twitter is, is, is a home for the so-called it. <laughs> people saying, I've finally seen the light and here, here's my story. So, so there's a lot of that, uh, as well. 
But in terms of maybe some differences, even one um, amidst those kind of more macro national differences, I've noticed, the, and we know this from psychology anyway, there's a difference in help-seeking behaviours between men and mm. women. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the attendees at, at, that that we've found has been kind of 80% female, 20% uh, males. Um, and... Yeah, and, and and that's kind of the the same in psychology. But we know from from the research that the the, the at least the mental health struggles are are largely across the board. So mm. there's something different happening there in terms of help seeking behaviors. Um, also, career stages. Um, there's a myth out there that just that it's just early career researchers, but you know. There's a reason I'm why sure. the, <laughs> there's a reason why the professor is, is unable to respond to the email because they, they themselves are frantically, um, fighting a, a similar, but also dissimilar, uh, battle on, 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 on overlapping themes there. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that needs to be addressed because it, I, I think the hardest kind of issue here is that, and wherever there are tensions in dialogue, Mm. it's that someone has been too uh, top down. So they're blaming the institutions, they're blaming the supervisors, they're blaming this, that, and the other with legitimate arguments. Mm. Or on the other side, someone's been too bottom up. They're putting too much on the individual to enact individual change. They're emphasizing too much of the agency of that, Mm. uh, of that early career researcher. Uh, and then the usual harmony <laughs> that I try and uh, establish at the end of such dialogue is that thing of, of course, it's multi-level. Of course, it has to be top down meets bottom up. Mm. Um, and my initial motivation was in realizing anything top down takes forever, particularly when you're talking about European Commission type policies yes. or even institutional policies. It takes time. So what can you and I do today and tomorrow? So hence kind of mentoring programs or hence kind of Mm -hmm. psychoeducational webinars about imposter phenomenon. It's not telling you to do things, but it's giving you some invitation to, to dialogue and, and resources that might Mm -hmm. be useful without blaming you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I just want to reinforce the thing that you said about um, issues playing out for people at all levels and, and you can see how they interplay as well where, I don't know, I'm, you know, I'm sure there are multiple reasons for bullying, but you can see, imagine if a, a more senior person is feeling under pressure and not handling their own mental health well, they're not able to be reflective enough or resourceful enough um, in having skillful interactions with people and that can play out in bullying because that's how they play out their own stresses. I mean, that's not all the time, of course, but... Just that it's it is multifactorial, and also just the fact that we can't put it all on the individual, and that change takes time. And how do we do that? I think you know, in this podcast, I talk about you know changing academic life, at, at, and also try to reflect on those levels and what can we do individually, and what can we do collectively to start that slower change that'll take longer. Yeah. Um, I, I want to go on and just get some practical tips from you, from what you, what the research is saying, or what you're seeing in the cost network there you know, for each of those levels. But before we do that, you know, I just realised we haven't really talked about you know, how do you 
define imposter. Let's just take that as an exemplar label. Mm. And I know that there's lots of discussion between syndrome versus phenomenon yeah. or just feelings and yeah. I well, it originated in the 1970s mm. with uh, in clinical psychotherapeutic literature, and I think the original sample was high achieving female professionals. Yes, yes. and even that uh, as 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 a birth is, is is quite interesting. And yeah, it was originally imposter phenomenon. Um, and how it's uh, somehow been repackaged as syndrome is fascinating because it's all over the particularly corporate self-help um, literature, if you could call it that. Much of it kind of this narrative of, you know, crush your inner imposter and mm. that kind of like, again, that thing of slowly putting it back onto you as you can, fi- you can fix it yeah. as opposed to it being a... a something more complex than that. Yeah. Ironically, even giving that talk back in July, uh, that webinar, <laughs> my, my own imposter was awoken before it. <laughs> Someone said to me, technically that's meta imposter phenomenon because <laughs> you're talking about it uh, yeah. and educating, trying to educate others about the psychology of it, yet you have it, therefore that's meta. Anyway. Um, like that could be a whole new label field. That's of what I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, simply put, it is when there is a, despite a series of, of of objective evidence, it's the feeling or experience of irrational levels of being an outright fraud, such that one's going to be found out, uh, and that they've they've managed to con everyone else into thinking that they're competent, functional in whatever role they're in. I think in a nutshell, that that's probably... Um, and I guess, is it any different in academia to other uh, worlds? Maybe not in principle, but it probably manifests slightly more easily when you see the kind of... the the very similar hierarchy and old school labels that we see uh, and that the other world, that the outside world would acknowledge, you know, professor and student and all these power dynamics that are implicit in the imagery of the higher education system. Um, and uh, add to that the kind of intellectual um, uh, power plays that occur with, you know, IP and, and, um, and, and theories and, and knowledge is power, of course. Yes. So that's how I how I define mm. it. Mm. Yes, it, there are a particular set of structural conditions within academia that would give it a particular flavour. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So do you want to just walk us through each of those levels and just talk about some of the ways in which we may be able to at least reflect, if not act. Sure. And I guess it's the usual cliche, isn't it, in any problem in life? The first thing you have to do is be aware of it. Mm. <laughs> it's always annoying to hear, isn't it? Um, I mean, when I first came across a, an excellent facilitator of of this conversation, it was Dr. Hugh Kearns. He's a educational psychologist and does a lot of... Um, 
training with universities. I think I think he is based in Australia, an, an Irishman based in Australia, mm. um, but tra- travels to most universities, es- essentially uh, detailing um, uh, individual skills, whether you're a supervisor, or a new PhD student, and 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 all and all the different things that we can do. But as part of that, uh, it was the first experience I had with uh, what Hugh termed kind of the imposter cycle. Um, so, I, I, you know, by being aware of that cycle, that's the first stage of being able to interrupt. So like we were discussing earlier, you know, everyone seems to nod their head when, when, when they go, okay, yeah, I was, I was breaking my neck trying to get this project off the ground and I knew I'd get there because, like, of course, like, I had to get there because this is expected of me. So, and all my peers did it. So, of course, that was going to come to pass. But now the real thing is this next thing. And you see that a lot with master's students. I had to get the master's because, like, everyone's getting master's. And, um, when I finally got it, I, they just write it off. It means it, as if it meant nothing. And mm. then it's the next worry. Um, I suppose all the while when we enter new environments, um, I suppose we are an imposter to an extent, although that word is certainly too harsh. We are new. Mm. We are a fish out of water. Yeah. We're not an isn't imposter. that just such a much more realistic label? Yeah. You know, I often use the analogy of a baby. You don't expect a baby to come out and be ready to run a marathon. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's learning. And when you're talking about kind of different, you know, the, from a supervisor perspective, if they haven't got the, if they're in a toxic environment, it breeds more toxicity Mm. across, across their ecosystem. So first, excuse me, first impressions matter. So where we know feelings of imposterism really exist, nipping it in the bud early on is the way to do it. Um, one example I love was a friend of mine before I started my PhD. He was like, one of the most important things you can do uh, amidst the chaos of academia is uh, like have one hour a week where you make sure everyone gets together in your immediate environment. And the rule is you can't talk about work. So it sounds so basic, but it's always my kind of go-to thing of like, well, whether it's a, a coffee club, whether it's a cake club, whether it's the walk, whether it's whatever it is. And it sounds so annoyingly basic, but think about the person that is used to the toxic environment and then they change labs and they, they start in your lab. And on that Friday at one o'clock, they're like, what's this? So this, no, this is the error. You're not allowed to talk about anything. We only want to ask how you are, but how are you really? You know, that's a, that sort of space that over time, particularly at the outset of 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 uh of one's career you can see how it becomes more powerful because the opposite mm. of that turns into the the toxic mm. uh horrific environments that we hear about in in yeah. in, in, in in terrible tales but um, and what you said before about the risk for people where that isn't made the norm mm. in actually saying how they really feel Absolutely. Absolutely. But in just kind of going back to the imposter awareness, I, I think it is, 
in the first instance, being able to to recognize what that cycle is and to what extent uh, these sometimes natural feelings become debilitating. Mm, so the thing mm-hmm. of, there were some nice examples uh, that I heard in the past where seeming busy as a strategic, sometimes unconscious means of avoiding the fact that you feel like the imposter when you're trying to write that paper or write project uh, or grant application or that meeting with the supervisor by seeming busy with a series of kind of low priority tasks. That's one way of, of, of avoiding. Mm. Uh, and how does that cascade? So if one is avoiding team meetings, if one is uh, avoiding things that, you know, when you look at the objective evidence, they could, they should have ample competency to engage with, but they don't. Uh, and then the effect of that over time, uh, these kind of things to keep an eye out for um, and what they're doing cognitively is really interesting. And I, I, I think the best way of interrupting it is, is hearing other people say, uh, yeah, no matter what I do, I still get these largely uncontrollable uh, and regular feelings of I'm going to be found out now. <laughs> And when you see, it's hard to relate to them, but it, they're always good quotes. But uh, I think in the webinar, I was using quotes from movie stars. Like I think mm. Tom Hanks was one of them. Like it's it's always going to be the next movie where people finally find out that I'm actually a useless actor and I've somehow gotten lucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I hear two things in what you've said there. <clears throat> Three things. Like there's the... It's the self-awareness piece of um, just recognising, oh, this is what's going on. You know, I am avoiding this or I am getting tied up in, in sort of the minutiae of things that aren't important because I'm avoiding what I think I can't do. You also talked about the importance of connecting and that sort of somehow hearing from other people and getting the validation that it's okay or maybe seeing yourself in what other people share and and. That, that sort of um, it's okay. And I also wonder whether we as supervisors or leaders or managers or whatever, you know, you talked about the importance of that person who said to you, you know, you're really good at facilitating. You know, and I wonder if there's also room for that in with great care and sensitivity, of course, saying I'm, I'm recognising that you're not coming to the lab meetings, you know. Um, what's going on? How are you going? Mm. How are you really going? So yeah, for us yeah. to maybe sometimes facilitate those one-on-ones as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's, I suppose that's where the complexity and understanding what it is and why it emerges is quite interesting. If you take that kind of sink, that sink or swim thing, if there's an unwritten but acknowledged rule that look everyone has imposter feelings, and you're in an environment where it's like uh, each person for themselves. Uh, that's hard because people will deal with it in different ways, such that you don't know that anyone else really has it. They seem mm. like high performing, everything's fantastic, and mm. and uh, and there's no scope for kind of check ins. Mm. Uh, hence early on um, 
it has to be that piece of here is a common experience and doing so much to kind of externalize it. And uh, like, I loved uh, when Hugh Kearns did this thing in his session. He walked into the room and he said, uh, folks, there's a, I don't know if you're aware, but there's one person in the room that shouldn't be here. They have, uh, they've done very well up until this point. Um, done reasonably well in school. Uh, they've gotten into UCD and so on and so forth. However, you know, they are actually an imposter and they're not really meant to be here. They're not, they haven't got the aptitude to be able to complete, the, you know, and you could see, e- even though you kind of knew what was going on here, mm. everyone's collective heart rate was kind of going, what if that's me? Mm. Um, yeah. So even as as a thought exercise, you have all the room feeling and acknowledging together. What is that thing where where we have that? Mm. Um, and crucially, at what point does it become um, really debilitating mm. uh, to the to the extent that it, it impacts the 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 trajectory of one's either engagement and or the actual work mm. um, and the process you described there as, as like having other people, be they, be they uh, peers, be they supervisors, be they kind of services within the university, for example, mm-hmm. um, finding ways um, that they can interrupt that cycle by avoid, or by being able to be aware of some of those patterns. I guess the insidious nature of imposter phenomenon is that it, it lives so internally and even some of those avoidant behaviors can be very hard to spot, mm. you know. Yes, we're very good at wrapping them yes. um, in, in legitimacy. So if we have managed to disrupt them, interrupt them, what can we then do You know, mm. so we've got the awareness? Yeah, so typically at that type of stage where you've 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 recognized that pattern of writing off all the good and and your your it's this next project that you're an a complete imposter and you're, and you're going to be found out on. Um you might have developed some kind of language to be able to call it out with yourself and with others. Um and I was always curious with my experiences of interacting with um with academics far more senior and experienced than me, how freely they would say, you can talk to me like I'm a seven-year-old because I have no idea about this method or this theory. And she uses that. And and I always thought that was really interesting. It's like, it, it, there's an honesty there and there's a, um, they've bypassed the fatigue of trying to pretend they understand it, mm. uh, which is a very important thing to, be able to do i think particularly early career or people in new jobs they're they're racing to to prove how great they are when you can't be great at everything so when you're not great at something how are you going to manage that Mm. piece um, and that sense of being an imposter with this new project so ideally there'd be some language there about being able to particularly externalize it so as it's not you um so I feel like um, this could be too much for me, rather than I'm useless and I don't want to inter- uh, I don't want to slow down the project, folks. Those are two kind of subtly different mm. framings, um, and where other people can do that. And I suppose 
in in essence, that's that's the core of a team, isn't it? But in, in academia, we're often working on very individualized uh, projects, so you do kind of need to have that um, support networks where where possible. Um, so I suppose by being able to do that, you're externalizing it, um, and you're living with rather than I suppose being living under the 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 feelings of imposter. Ideally, that's how it would it would unfold. Mm. And all the while acknowledging, look, it's probably going to be there. It's not this thing of needing to, like the self-help gurus say, crush it or fix it. It's mm. actually yeah. a case of understanding what it is and, and letting it live quietly. Mm. Um, you know, I suppose mm. that's similar to people with experiences of anxiety. It's not as if it just goes away forever. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a case of you living also- with... Yeah, I like the sort of living with. And you also spoke at the very beginning when you talked about, you know, the the strengths and the facilitation as a strength. And you you said that strengths can sometimes, you know, have a weakness, be a be a weakness as well. And makes me think that these feelings can also have a positive side because in that reframing and rethinking the language we use around it, it maybe is just pointing to what are the next things we need to learn and how do we how do we facilitate that learning process and give ourselves the the grace to be a learner which means mm. you know making mistakes and sometimes not getting it right mm. Mm. absolutely and kind of taking that forward with you kind of saying okay there's that new project or that new grant or that new job um and respecting that the the busy mind of imposter feelings for that month will will, will be there, uh, and that is kind of it's almost kind of hardwired as as a way to help you adapt, mm. um, and spotting where it can become too much or or it's too loud. Um, so for I suppose respecting it for what it is and what it isn't. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was a great article in I think it was the Harvard Business Review, and I think the title was "Stop Telling Women They Have yes. Imposter Syndrome." Yes, a very on point uh, in terms of okay. In that article, it was kind of pointing more to systemic issues that are that that contribute significantly. Mm. Um, for example, in effect, of reward systems in in academia certainly don't help feelings of being an imposter but um yeah it, it just shows there are many sides to the mm, yeah to the debate yeah. so in what you've talked about have you touched upon both then the that sort of local level and the the more institutional level like the the group or is there more to say around the group before we move on to policy more structural stuff no i think the group as i said it's been able to understand and and always have that cycle Mm. in one's head and uh, Mm. trying to find uh yeah a peer network that that can be there Mm. with it as well and it's 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 the simplicity sometimes of having that space And hearing others say it, you're not doing anything solution focused. Sometimes the power and the therapeutic value is in a group of us saying, here's how I feel mm. like imposter. So yeah, I love your, you know, uh, hiding it under or be- being sitting with. So it's sort of like yeah. taking the monster out from under Pretty the much. cupboard or under the bed and 
sitting it beside you. Yeah, because it's it's the it's very easy for you to see the illegitimacy of my monster, Mm. and likewise me of yours. Uh, And then together, when you see that process play out, you don't really need to say much more. It kind of speaks for itself. Um, yeah. And then people from there, they would naturally be able to support each yeah. other by yeah. kind of saying, I, I found it really powerful that, you know, uh, in your career space at the moment that you feel that exact same thing as I feel, but I'm in a completely different world and place. Uh, and it, it, you can see the intrinsic value of yeah. of that. Um, yeah. and, and that's ideally the perfect scaffold into the okay well then how do we interrupt um and 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 reframe and make sure that it's not becoming too intense yeah there was also um an article in the july journal of further and higher education about um the value of communities of practice and for early career researchers which picks up on that thing as well helping each other you know sort of um see each other's monsters in their, yeah. in their right light. Um, so what about at the policy, at the system level? The slower, the yeah. Yeah, archaic, slow to change academic yeah. systems. I suppose it's two-part, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the – and this reflects the organisation of our, of our cost action. We have kind of local level so – kind of bottom-up actors so these would be advocates activists or the, the individual level mm-hmm. and then the, the next kind of layer up would be the institution so that of, of course subsumes schools departments services and then above that again i suppose is your governance and funders and um kind of big policy so so european commission for example um and you know in the broad area of kind of mental health uh, or even kind of, you know, basic psychoeducational things on the psychology of, 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 uh, of imposter phenomenon, for example, at a, at a, at a, at an institutional level, there needs to be an acknowledgement matched with resources, I guess. Mm. It's very easy to say. <laughs> um, and there's just such highly variable um, uh, realization of that across institutions. Um, and there are different types of services. There are, there's a panic about kind of clinical levels of need. Um, one of the main tensions that we see with institutions and land and likewise funders and governance is if you send out a, a for example, a, a nationally representative survey within which there are clinical measures, there's an argument there that, well, actually, do they really want to know? Because the second that you become aware of a one in three clinically significant mental health problem there's a duty of care depending on the on, on on the organization there's a duty of care in the response indeed isn't so it that's a big one that is a big one mm. um and there's been i like t- 2017 actually that was the year i started the phd i think that was a year or two after or maybe it was the year of the katia levec et al paper so this was a nationally representative uh, survey in Belgium. And this was the seminal paper. I think it was the second most cited paper or an engaged paper that year. 
world, in, in, in the whole world. And it was the one that found one in two PhD students had some mental health difficulty. One in three were at risk of having. And because it was Belgium, there's only two major universities there. So everyone knew who the sample was. And this kind of kick-started the dynamic. It can no longer be uh, in the dark about this. Uh, Belgium, you know, where, where the... The EU is the home of the EU, and you know, all of a sudden that kick started the thing of okay, there is a problem with this, uh, mm. with whatever's going on in academia, and then from there flowed all manner of uh, kind of multi level responses. Um, and as you said, things are slow, um, but I think institutions are. Uh, at a variable level, recognizing that they need to have at least a clear-cut evidence-based policy. Um, there's a complexity as well with HR. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't like their HR departments because they don't want to get a lunchtime email saying, here's some resilience or mindfulness training. Yeah. Even though mindfulness and resilience for certain populations can have a, a really yeah. healthy, important role but when it comes from an institution at a certain time, it almost aggravates the problem. When they're uh, the ones asking for the unrealistic workloads or the performance measures and yeah, things that yeah. are causing the stress in the first place. Exactly, exactly. So there's that inherent painful irony uh, to, mm. to how the system operates. Um, and then I suppose if we jump ahead to a more macro uh, governance and policy level, there is kind of slow change. Um, one example is kind of that conversation around hypermobility, at least in the context of European Commission grants, um, a softening of the rules maybe on the cards mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or an elongating of the, or shortening where necessary of certain funding periods. Um, and most importantly, the term mental health and well-being, we're seeing it in key policy documents which is, is it's frustrating for the individual activists because it's like if you chart the 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 key amazing policy documents that were supposed to be the 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 precursor to actual change there's mm. been about seven or eight of them mm. um so such is the pace of of change at that yeah. level but at yeah. least the dialogue is there what's happening yeah right um just in looking towards wrapping up, just a uh, time marching on. What haven't we talked about that we should just mention here that would be useful? Sure, I suppose I would signpost kind of the community that is Remo, the Cost Action. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're nearing five hundred members all across Europe and internationally. Uh, we have a manifesto where we kind of talk about this. This um, this multi level change at the governance level, the level, and the local level. Three working groups to reflect that. We have open access webinars, uh, events. Um, we have an ambassador program as well. So people are more than welcome to to engage w- with any aspects of that, and, and indeed sign the manifesto as well if they so mm-hmm. wish. Um, so I'd uh, welcome your audience to that community for sure 
Dara, thank you for um, just falling into this area <laughs> and and for the work that you and your colleagues in the Research and Mental Health Observatory and that project um, are doing just to both raise awareness, make it okay to talk about providing the spaces for people and being advocates for, for change across these levels. It is something we really need right now. Thank you. And thank you for listening and and inviting. And no doubt we'll have you in our in our remote community in some capacity soon as well, hopefully. But thank no, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk about it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dara. Thanks, Geraldine. And that's my conversation with Dara McCashin. I'm curious what things connected most for you about this conversation. For myself, it made me reflect on the imposter as one reason why I think I'm not so good at managing upwards. And I think this is because I come from a family, an extended family, where neither of my parents even went to high school, let alone to university. And so this conversation made me reflect that I still carry with me this sense of not quite belonging in the academy, of being an imposter, of not quite being from the right social stratum. And so it really is reassuring to know that dealing with imposterism is not just me. What I appreciated in particular in Dara's unpacking of imposterism for us was the emphasis on taking a multi-level approach and not putting it all on the individual to deal with. Having said this, there are still things we can do for ourselves, and I thought it was a powerful invitation for each of us to be honest in our own academic circles about our imposter, and also to give ourselves a break because we can't be good at everything, and, and that's something we've heard other people also talk about. And his point about the importance of needing resources at the institutional level and not just acknowledgement is also so critical. Tangentially, I also think Dara is a great role model for just having a go, putting yourself out there, for doing things, getting into things that you really care about. I'm grateful that his imposter didn't hold him back, nor his colleagues back, in the work that they're doing in the Remo Network. So you'll find a link to this and to the manifesto that he mentioned, if you want to sign it, on the Changing Academic Life webpage. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen. Thank you.